Well, good morning, everyone. It's an honor to be able to join with you today. Uh, earlier, Cam was introducing me, and in quotes, he said 20 years. Uh, no, he didn't say 20 years. He says guest speaker, but I have actually been a member of this congregation for about 20 years. Uh, but it's still good once in a while to be able to come and open the Word. If you have your Bibles with you or on your phone or whatever, if you want to open up to John 14, we're largely going to be really focusing on this passage, verses 15 to 27. And to give it a tiny bit of context, as you've heard in previous weeks, uh, chapters 14 to 17 is what sometimes is described as the upper room discourse where Jesus is sharing with his disciples some of his last words. This is his last night here on earth before he will be crucified the next day for our sins, for our redemption. So in, in these chapters, uh, it's dense, it's very thick, it's meaty, it's very rich and robust. There is so much in here what Jesus is having to say because it's so important to be able to listen at this point of these last words that he has for his disciples before his crucifixion. Here's what he says from 15 to 27. I'm reading from the New International Version. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Lots in there. Um, I sat here last week and I, and I listened as Gord shared from his text and uh, I was very much moved by what he had to say, the depths and the truths of what he shared. And as he ended the sermon, he, he left all of you who were here and maybe you're watching online a challenge that we would focus on three things, maintaining a strong faith, aligning our will with God's will, and on glorifying God. Now, in many ways, 
uh, Jesus is continuing to say some of the things in slightly a different way. He implores us three different times, sort of more or less saying the same thing. In verse 15, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. In verse 21, he says, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And then in verse 23, he says, if a man loves me, he will keep my word. In essence, he is saying the same thing here, the importance of this relationship between uh, our loving God and out of that love, we therefore then keep his commands and want to keep his commands. But the question is then, but Lord, how do we do this? How do we, like, you're leaving us. You told us back in verse 2, you're going to be leaving us. How do we do this? How do we live this out? How do we glorify God? How do we maintain a strong faith? How do we do this? And the reality is this. In our humanness, in our small, sin-cramped world, in our fallenness, and our brokenness, we can't do it. I think every sermon should have a little caveat, a little asterisk that says, oh, by the way, if you're going out of here thinking I have to work harder and try harder and do more, more willpower, you will fail. You can't do it. Now, he didn't say that directly to the disciples because the disciples had already figured it out. They can't do this. But here's the good news. Jesus says, I've got it covered. I have it covered. I remember many, many years ago, uh, I think it was 1993 or 1994, there was this huge pastor's conference down in Atlanta held by Promise Keepers. And 40,000 men, uh, I know that pastors can be women as well, but in this case it was all men, 40,000 of us were in this big football stadium in Atlanta. And there was about 14 preachers. It was like the great American speak-off, preach-off, or whatever you want to call it, right? But there was one guy that came up there. His name was T.D. Jakes. Now, if you know T.D. Jakes, he's a Southern Baptist, black, big guy, and he preached in that way. And now you have to understand, I was a little bit cocky and arrogant, and I thought, you know, the only way you need to preach is, you know, exegetically and pull it apart and dissect every word and, you know, look at the Greek and the Hebrew and Aramaic and just break it all down. But T.D. Jakes got up and he preached on one verse, Luke twenty-two thirty-one, and he says, where it says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. Simon, that your faith may not fail. Now, that was the verse he was preaching from. And then for about 15 minutes, he camped out on the word but. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And then for about 15 minutes, he just stood there on the platform, and he just kept repeating the word but, but... And the crowd went, wah, like this. And then he went, go, wah, and the crowd went, like this, right? So after about 10 or 15 minutes, I'm like, come on, man, get on with it. <laughs> right? Now, you've got to understand, you know, what is it, 93, 30 years later, just about, I really don't remember anything else about that conference 
except this one word. <laughs> and whenever I feel the world coming in on me, wherever I feel sin creeping into my life and my brokenness and, I, and I'm challenged, all I can now hear is T.D. Jakes going, but, but I've got it covered. Jesus has it covered through his Holy Spirit. This is how Jesus puts it in John 14, 16. And this is like the key verse for my whole text. I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. What he's saying is this, I've got it covered. Would one of someone, uh, can you grab me a bottle of water or something? I'm like drying out. Oh, Felicia Bull. Thank you, Felicia. I appreciate that. Uh, I will send you another advocate. That is, th this is the post but, you know, but I will send another advocate. I've got you covered. Yes, I am going away, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to be with you. This is sort of the outline of the sermon. Who is the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit do? And third, how do we receive what the Holy Spirit gives? Number one, who is the Holy Spirit? Uh, I, I stole this definition from Tim Keller. Uh, he says, the Holy Spirit is the personal divine resident of the Christian heart. Now, I said I stole that from Tim Keller because I can remember I heard Tim Keller say that. Uh, I think I probably steal everything in my sermons from somewhere. I just don't always remember where I got it. Uh, but there's probably not a whole lot of original thought in here. Uh, but I think by the Holy Spirit bringing it together and being able to share today. Uh, uh, notice here that the Holy Spirit is not an it. Sometimes we speak of the Holy Spirit as an it. Oh, you're awesome. Yes. Thank you very much. Sometimes we kind of refer to the Holy Spirit as an it, like a, a nebulous power, an impersonal force. But in Ephesians 4, we're told the Holy Spirit is grieved. In Hebrews 10, we're told the Holy Spirit is outraged. In Romans 15, we're told the Holy Spirit loves. An impersonal force cannot feel these things. The Holy Spirit is a person. But he's not only a person, he is God. Going back to verse 16, I want you to look at the word another that is used there. I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. There are two Greek words for another in the New Testament. The first one is hetero, which means different to the other. I'm going to send you another one, but the, 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 the other one is different. And then there's halos, and that means just like the former. So what Jesus is saying here is that I am sending another advocate, and he uses the word halos here, okay? So he's wanting to emphasize that the Holy Spirit is just like the first advocate. They are the same. They are one. And the first advocate is himself. Jesus is our first advocate. 
And now he is sending another advocate. We have an external advocate in Jesus, and we have now an internal advocate in the Holy Spirit. And he wants to emphasize that they are one. They are just like each other. This is an enormous claim that Jesus is making. In John chapter 8, Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. Now, to understand the, the holiness of that statement and that claim that Jesus is making here, he is actually using the very name that the God the Father, the Creator, uses to describe himself when he is talking to Moses before the burning bush. I am the great I am. Jesus claims that he is able to forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus says, I am going to judge the world. He is basically saying this, that the Father and I are one. Now here, Jesus is saying, I am sending one just like me. And he is saying, the Holy Spirit and I are one. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. It's a simple little math equation going on here. But basically what he is saying is that the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, we are one. We are one God. The Holy Spirit is an equal divine person as to the Father and to the Son. In fact, when we read this passage, uh, it's just it's dripping with Trinitarian theology, Trinitarian doctrine. Uh, in 14.9, Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And now here in 14, verse 18, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, it's interesting because he says, I'm sending the Holy Spirit. I'm sending another advocate. But here now he's saying, I will come to you. Will make up his mind. Is it him that's coming to us? Or is it the Holy Spirit? What he is saying is, the Holy Spirit... And I, the second person of the Holy Spirit, of the Trinity, are one. I am sending one just like me. The Holy Spirit is God. This phrase, I will not leave you as orphans, it could be argued that that is probably in many ways the central message of Jesus' upper room discourse. He will not leave us as orphans. This, this is like the ultimate good news that the disciples need to hear in this time and place, in this moment, as they are trying to wrap their heads about what's going to happen in the coming days. I will come to you in the person of the Holy Spirit. And now, this, this word that is translated, depending on what version of the Bible you're looking at, in the, in the NIV we're using the word advocate, but sometimes it's translated comforter sometimes counselor, sometimes helper. Uh, one of the other things I stole from Tim Keller, and I'll expand on this in a few minutes, is that he, Tim Keller calls him the perfect, supreme, ultimate friend. And we'll unpack that in a few minutes. But with this friend, this advocate, in verse 12, it tells us that uh, Jesus is saying, you know, when I send the advocate, not only will you do the same things that we have done together, but with the advocate, you'll even do greater things than what we have done. 
In verse 2, Jesus says, I am going away. Verse 16, Jesus tells us the Holy Spirit is coming. And in verses 21 to 23, Jesus says, the Father and I will come to you in the person of the Holy Spirit. So now he's adding to it. He's not just saying, I am coming to you. He's saying, the Father and I are coming to you. This is, this is a declaration of the triune God. Now, to wrap our heads around this, we need to understand, Jesus is saying there is not three gods because we are too one to be three gods. He is also not saying we are one person in three different forms. He is saying, I am one God in three persons. Now, the doctrine of the Trinity and, and allowing it to sink deep into our hearts uh, is one of the more complex doctrines to wrap our head around. We often try to look for metaphors and illustrations to try and understand the Trinity. I'm not going to try and unpack it right now, but just understand that what Jesus is saying in this passage is very much a, a, a teaching of what it means to be the Trinity, that God and Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the three persons, is the triune God. Now, it's important when we talk about the Holy Spirit because there's a lot of language around the Holy Spirit that's used in the church. Uh, when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, God himself is coming to dwell with you. And it's important for us to be able to distinguish between the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit and to discern is there a distinction or is there a difference here? One of the mistakes that we often make in the church is that many of us believe and think that to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to get more of the Holy Spirit in us. And that's not true. When the Holy Spirit moves in, the whole of the Holy Spirit moves in. The whole of who God is moves in. The Holy Spirit, according to Ephesians 1.13, is given at the moment of salvation. Galatians 3 and 2 tells us and emphasizes the same truth, saying that the sealing and indwelling of the Spirit took place at the time of believing. So the moment we believe and accept Christ into our lives, the Holy Spirit moves in. We should be so completely yielded to the Holy Spirit that he can possess us fully and in that sense, fill us. Now we're getting to an understanding of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 and 9, Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14, both clearly state that he, he dwells within every believer. But Thessalonians 5, 19 tells us his activity, though, within us can be quenched. We can quench the Holy Spirit in us. To be filled with the Holy Spirit implies freedom for him, for God, to occupy every part of our lives, guiding us and controlling us. So the real question here isn't about getting more of the Holy Spirit in us, getting more of God in us. It's about whether the Holy Spirit is getting more of us. And that is one of the key roles of the Holy Spirit. He wants, as he is in us, he wants to get more and more of us. 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4 tells us, we have been made partakers of the divine nature. 
This word partakers sometimes is translated as share or as participants. We have been made participants of the divine nature. We get the share in the divine nature. Now, as the Holy Spirit is able to fill us, and as he gets more and more control of our lives, and he calls out those parts of us that are still not surrendered over to him, but as that happens, there's a deep understanding here. This is critically important. You see, as partakers of the divine nature, there are no wounds in you that are so great that he can't heal them. There is no brokenness in you that he can't repair. There is no binding habit in you that you cannot be freed from. To be full of the Spirit, to live out of the truth of what we have as partakers of the divine nature, gives us this incredible capacity for complete healing in our being. And as we begin to look at and understand that, we, go on, we want to talk now about what does the Holy Spirit do in us? What does the Holy Spirit do beyond us? Now, I'll be honest, it's impossible to cover this topic. The good news is Jacob's going to be preaching next week, and his text from chapter 15 is also going to be largely looking at the work of the Holy Spirit. So he gets to expand on this, and I will look forward to hearing that. But I want to look at some, there's some unique attributes to this text that we want to pick up on. Once again, going back to verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. Now, when you look at the word give you, it's important to note that this is not a singular person that he's talking about here. This is the you, the plural, the corporate. Uh, we often read scripture as though uh, it's written to an individual or directed to an individual. But most of Scripture, most of Jesus' teaching is at the corporate level. There is a corporate dimension to our salvation, and, there, and that is embedded here in this verse. The important because not only does the Holy Spirit unite us to Christ, but he also unites us as his disciples to each other. The Holy Spirit is the central agent, and we see this when we come into the story of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, what will be the formation of the church. The Holy Spirit is the DNA of the church. One of the works of the Holy Spirit is not just moving into our hearts, but it's moving in such a way that we get to live this out in a community of believers, and that unites us. This means that every other Christian, no matter how different they may be, race, personality, color, socioeconomic stage, status, age, gender, has a spiritual bond of infinite depth with each other. We as Northridge are small C church, but there is the capital C church, the universal church. And what does that mean for us to understand and to live that out? It behooves us to figure out what this looks like and how to do it. And dare I say, we don't always do it very well. I think there's a lot of work that we need to be engaging in as the larger church in terms of unifying our voice through the Holy Spirit. 
especially in this day with so many cultural shifts taking place around us. How do we respond to this? And it's only through a unified voice of his church through the Holy Spirit speaking the truth that we will have any chance of not just leaning into culture and figuring out culture, but actually the church moving into the center and being culture shapers in our day. The Holy Spirit is also the spirit of truth and our ultimate friend. Let's look at the spirit of truth. This is, this is very important for us. Um, sometimes we pit the Holy Spirit against the Bible. I remember, I'm going back even further now, 1989. Uh, September 1989, it was my very first semester at seminary. And I, I was sort of a theological newbie coming from Salvation Army Church, and, and there was a bunch of guys that we were, we were starting to connect and be friends, and the intriguing part was that a couple of them were, had come to, to the seminary from a Pentecostal church background, and, and two or three of the other ones were coming from more of a Presbyterian, Lutheran, and Anglican background. And, and that created a unique dynamic because they came with different a cultural, biblical, theological, experiential framework in terms of who God is and how God works. And I remember just standing there, and I'm usually like the disturber in the group. I like to be the disturber. Uh, but in this case, I wasn't. I was just standing back and watching these guys as, as the more mainline conservatives were talking about the biblical theology and who God is and breaking it down exegetically and, you know, using lots of big words. Meanwhile, the Pentecostal guys were kind of going, you don't know God. You know, have you spoken in tongues? Have you been slain with the Spirit? We've had this experience. And they were kind of going back and at, at forth at each other as though one had a better position in terms of who God was than the other, and they were pitting against each other. And I was just kind of standing back, kind of going, what is this? Right? What's going on here? Right? But notice, he's described as the spirit of truth. So who he is as the Holy Spirit and the truth of the word of God are not incongruent. In fact, the spirit is central to the word that we have today, the New Testament, the Old Testament. Look at verses 25 and 26. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. If you, if you do any reading on how the New Testament came to be, this is a verse that is pretty much always quoted because it's a central verse to understanding the, the inerrancy and the inspiration of Scripture, of the New Testament. Basically, what it's saying is this, that one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to remind us of what Jesus has done, what Jesus has said. When the New Testament is being written, the Holy Spirit is reminding its writers of everything that Jesus said. It's Holy Spirit inspired. It is inerrant. The spirit of truth creates, writes our Bible. Let's keep going. 
1 John 2, 20 tells us, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. You have an anointing. Now, if you want to understand that a little better, I'm not going to go into it now, but crack open 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 to 16. And Paul there gives us a very deep, robust understanding what that means, that the Holy One, the Holy Spirit, is anointing us to know the truth. Okay, wonderful passage. But both of these passages emphasize the fact that the Holy Spirit reveals truth in us. I don't know about you, but I've met many, many, many people who will come to me and who are not followers of Christ, they're not believers, but they will speak to the fact that, yes, I've read the Bible and I found it, I found it wanting, or I didn't buy into it, or I didn't accept it, or, and, and, and they read it almost detached from it. But here's what happens when the Holy Spirit has moved in and he's now taking possession more and more of our heart. Scripture comes alive in a whole new way. For those of you who are followers of Christ and are seeking a deeper understanding of who God is in your life, you can relate to this when you open the word of God of how it comes to life and how it can move you to tears and just set you back. When we receive Christ, we also receive the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit anoints us to know the truth. He sets us apart that we might know the truth. Verse 21, I too will love them and show myself to them. The central role of the Holy Spirit is to point us to Christ. Points us to the gospel, which is the story of Christ. It is to point us to the truth. We sing a song sometimes, to open the eyes of our hearts, we want to see Jesus. That is, that is a call to the Holy Spirit in us to open up our eyes that we might see Jesus. You see, when we speak, teach, preach, contemplate, we study about Jesus, we are living out of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. The Holy Spirit wants to keep pointing us back to Jesus because of who Jesus is and what he has done. That is the ultimate story. The whole of Scripture has a story arc or a meta-narrative, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. But central in that is the redemptive work that takes us from our fallenness. Because we were created for the purpose of having a deep, intimate love relationship with God. And that is the work that Jesus does is to restore that, having fallen and having sinned and having deserved death. But now Jesus on the cross, he is now our redemption. And now he is also working to restore us through the Holy Spirit in us so that we can enter glory and the fullness of our salvation. But what the Holy Spirit wants to keep pointing to is the work of Jesus, this redeeming work 
as he is changing us and transforming us into his likeness. The Holy Spirit casts a light on Christ and his work. This is one of the reasons it's, it's fair It's one of the reasons it's fair that uh, more often than not, we find ourselves talking more about the person of Jesus Christ in our services and in our preaching than we are talking about the person of the Holy Spirit. It's not that we are, you know, you're indifferent to the work of the Holy Spirit, but that's because that's the Holy Spirit would have it that way. The Holy Spirit is saying, look at Christ. Look at what he has done. His work by the Father's desire is that which is our salvation because we are incapable of saving ourselves. So he wants to keep pointing back at Jesus. You see, we also recognize that the Holy Spirit is our ultimate friend. Once again, back to verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate. The advocate, the Holy Spirit, in verse 26. Now, it's interesting because different translations use different words here. Um, some translations use the word helper. Some say counselor. Some say comforter. Some say advocate. Uh, the Greek word is parakaleo. And uh, whenever you get a word that is being translated into multiple different English words, basically what it means is the, the richness of this word, we're not really capable of finding an English word that truly reflects what it means. And therefore, we have multiple different words to reflect this person, the Holy Spirit. And uh, it's also unique... Uh, to look at this word as well in other places in the New Testament where it's not referencing the Holy Spirit. I'll look at that in a second. Uh, so when we look at this, so the word advocate in and of itself is a little too hard. The word helper is a little too weak. The, the word comforter is a little too soft. The word counselor is a little too detached. And I take personal offense to that. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, but this image of the parakaleo uh, is, is someone who is coming alongside, who is always with you, always for you. But as I noted, this word is also used many, many times throughout the New Testament, and it's not referring directly to the Holy Spirit, and it's translated this way. It's translated as the word appeal, or declare, or to argue, or to beseech, or to exhort, to implore, instruct, to plead, to preach, to request, to urge. Now that gives us a little bit more of a robust understanding of what this word parakaleo means. And at the center of that is this idea of, you know, exhorting to argue with us. And this is where we come back to this idea of who the ultimate friend is. You see, a, a, a good friend, yes, will help us, will comfort us, will counsel us. But a good friend is also willing to argue with you. And they're not arguing with you because they enjoy a good argument or they need to win. This kind of friend we're talking about is arguing with you because they see something in you that is not right. And they want to bring correction. They want to bring healing 
They want to challenge you to address it. This is why probably the word advocate is the better translation in this passage. You see, the Holy Spirit as our advocate, this is really important to understand. The Holy Spirit as our advocate is not making a case before God. That's what the first advocate is doing. This is the second advocate, the other advocate. He is arguing against the enemies in our own heart. He is advocating for your holiness. He is advocating for your sanctification. He is advocating that you should be holy, set apart, consecrated. Romans 8.16 says this, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The Holy Spirit himself, God himself, testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, it's important to understand what's being said here. Uh, some translations, instead of saying testifies with, says bears witness. This is actually what's called a forensic term or a legal term that is being used here, okay? And what it is saying is this, is that we have legally been declared holy. It's a declaration of our holiness. We've been declared set apart. But remember, it's just a legal term. Now, it's very important because understanding our legal standing enables us to live our life in a very different way. It's interesting how uh, it was this verse when John Wesley had left America, and he was a little discouraged when he left North America, and as he sailed back to England, having sought to bring the, the, this message of the gospel and the theological framework, knowing that uh, you know, we, the Salvation Army, uh, are a denomination that is birthed out of sort of that Wesleyan tradition as well. We would be described as a Wesleyan church in terms of doctrine and theology. And when he arrived on the shores of England, there was, there was a group of believers where he landed that came out to meet him. And this group was called Moravians, okay? Now, the Moravians of that day were very much like we might like in the Pentecostals in our day, a fairly charismatic lot. And the greeting that the leader of this group brought to John Wesley was this. He says, does your spirit testify with his spirit that you are a child of God? He used this verse as a greeting and as a question. Now, John Wesley would say, uh, he, go, he says, yes, he does. But as we would read his journals many years later, we would discover that he was very disturbed by how he answered that question so quickly. Because as he began to reflect on what that really meant to him, did, did his spirit have the full capacity of his heart? And later on, we would go on to read about what is often referred to as the Aldersgate experience, where Wesley experiences this strange warming of his heart and the complete infilling of the Holy Spirit for his whole being. Now, I'll let you look that up. That's a great story, very powerful. But it's important to realize that we are justified, and yet we are not yet sanctified holy. 
See, the word sanctified is a medical term. It basically means we are being healed. So I may have gone to the doctor and got my wound all stitched up and nicely bandaged, and I'm pretty much guaranteed if I look after that properly, it's going to heal up nicely. But it's still healing. It's not all better yet. So we are constantly in this process that we are justified, we are saved, but we are being sanctified. We, will be, we, we are being saved, medically speaking, and in glorification, we are fully saved. I'm saved, I'm being saved, I will be saved. I am declared holy, I'm being made holy, I will be made holy. There's this three stages. But what we have here, in the, what the Spirit testifies to us is that we have been declared holy holy, and we must hold on to that. You see, 1 John 3.20 tells us this, if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. This is the battle within us. God, the Holy Spirit, is greater than even our hearts. And often our hearts do want to condemn us. And Satan kind of gets in there. And wants to tell us that we're weak, we're not good enough, we're not really Christians. You see, the Holy Spirit will argue with you about two primary things in your life. First, that you are a sinner. We tend to be blind to our own weaknesses, our responsibilities, our sinfulness. But the Holy Spirit is like a floodlight inside of us that casts a light on the enemies of our heart and wants to bring them into his submission under his lordship through the Holy Spirit. But there's a lot of people uh, who also struggle to understand that they are loved and accepted. And, And the Holy Spirit will argue with us that we are also children of God. We don't have to go out and earn it. We have it. It's declarative. We are children of God. We simply live it out. You see, when the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit first moves in, he is both delighted and appalled at the same time. He is delighted because the prodigal child, us, has come home. Home, you know, in creation, God created us for this deep, intimate love relationship that we should abide together for eternity and worship God out of that relationship. So he's delighted when we come back home to him. But he's appalled by the mess we have made of his image in us. We are created in God's image, and then the Holy Spirit moves in and he looks around and says, What a mess! It's like, finally, you got rid of those tenants, and you get back into the apartment, and you kind of go like, man, they've just about destroyed the place. You still recognize it, barely as you, you know, but you've made a mess of it. We are the temple of the living God, and and we make a mess of it. He gets in there, and, and, and the Holy Spirit sees how you've been working yourself to death just to try and prove yourself, to say, I have worth, I have value. We find ourselves manipulating people just to get a little ounce of approval or validation from them because we are so insecure in who we are. We find ourselves addicted to power, 
uh, addicted to a need to be needed. We're addicted to looks and money and popularity. And now the Holy Spirit, in His sanctifying work in us, is now on the business of cleaning us up, of restoring us, so that we as individuals can reflect Christ's likeness, so that we as the church can be the bride prepared for the bridegroom, pure and holy. Now here's the good news. Our ultimate friend, our advocate, will not give up. I don't know about you, but uh, I, I often meet in my work uh, people who come in and say, I have no friends left. Basically, uh, all their friends had got burned out or given up on them. Every human fan, friend eventually will become exhausted and give up. But the Holy Spirit will never give up. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit will not leave you alone. He is all in, fully invested in our holiness, in our sanctification, in our healing, in our restoration, in our redemption. How do we get in all this? How do we receive what the Holy Spirit gives? Very quickly, just two things. Number one, believe. If you want the ministry of the second advocate in your lives, we need to believe in the ministry of the first advocate, Jesus Christ. 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That's referring to the first advocate. Now, it's important to understand this distinction. The advocate, Jesus Christ, is not standing before the Father and pleading for mercy for us. He doesn't need to. He's actually telling the Father that he needs to judge out of justice. Because the price of sin has already been paid. And you cannot punish twice for the same crime. So the Father, with Jesus, the first advocate, does not punish us for that which we deserve because Christ has already done that as our first advocate. And Romans 8.1 tells us, Therefore, there is now no condemnation, no guilt verdict, no punishment, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus' justice demands, here's what justice demands, justice now by what Christ has done, we get to live in the Father's love for eternity. And finally, obey. 
This is, this, these are the verses we started with. If you love me, you will keep my commands. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Now, don't think that obedience is the means to getting God. Because we get God, and out of love, we want to be obedient. Let us find a way to think less about ourselves and more about God. Let us cease the self-indulgence and self-centeredness. Let us learn to serve our neighbors and serve God. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you do not leave us as orphans. We thank you that we have your Holy Spirit in us. And Lord, we pray that you would search us, Lord. That we would lower our walls inside of us and allow your Holy Spirit to probe into the tiniest of crevices and cracks in our being. And reveal in us, Lord, our brokenness, that we might receive your healing. Let us be in touch with your wounds so that our wounds can be healed. And Lord, let us, knowing that our salvation is secure in you because of what you have done, that you have declared us just and holy, and now, God, you are continuing to make us holy. And in this, Lord, help us to honor you and to worship you and to glorify you. We ask you all these things in your most holy name. Amen.